Welcome back to Mistakes, Missteps, and Mindsets, stories of failure in academic research. I'm Alex White, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Crystal Nunes. On today's <laughs> episode of our podcast, we have Dr. Katerina Matursky. Dr. Matursky is an assistant professor at the Daphne Coxwell School of Nursing at Toronto Metropolitan University. She joined the faculty in 2021, while she simultaneously maintains her nursing practice in general internal medicine at Toronto Western Hospital. She completed her PhD in nursing at the University of Western Ontario and obtained her bachelor's of science in nursing and master's of nursing degrees from the Daphne Coxwell School of Nursing. Her research program focuses on communities impacted by social, economic, and health challenges, and the intersectionality and positionality in population-centered care. She is also active in pedagogical work, nursing education, and engaging in practice that supports social justice and health equity. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be part of this podcast. Dr. Matursky, could you please describe to our listeners your area of expertise and the classes that you teach at Toronto Metropolitan? At Toronto Metropolitan University, as was mentioned, I teach at the Daphne Cockwell School of Nursing. So I'm a professor in nursing and specifically I teach in the second year of the undergraduate program. Uh, courses based on nursing theory, so concepts, theories, frameworks, as they apply to individuals, patients, people with chronic uh, illness and chronic health challenges in the fall semester. And then I navigate to patients, people, persons, individuals, um, and families with acute care challenges. So that is primarily where I am housed in the nursing curriculum, but I also do a lot of supervision of graduate students in the master's program, uh, particularly master of nursing thesis stream program. Amazing. Um, and was this something that you always thought you were gonna do growing up? So. When I entered the nursing profession, both of my parents are physicians from yep. Ukraine. So when okay. I came here, I was eight years old and there was somewhat of a pressure mm -hmm. uh, from my parents for my sister and I to both also become doctors. So I didn't go into nursing with that in mind, but that was one of the options. However, in year two of the undergraduate program, we have to do a research methods course. Mm -hmm. And after I completed that course, one of the professors approached me and asked if I wanted to participate in a research project. Mm. What is research? Why? Mm -hmm. Why me? I am novice, year two student. I have no understanding of what nursing is. And here I am invited to be a research assistant on a study that focused on an element of nursing practice. So that was very novel to me. I struggled through that summer, but because of the exceptional mentorship that I received, mm. the ability to make errors and have somebody be there to walk you through and support that in a very welcoming, enriching environment really helped me think about, hmm, maybe a career that has an element of research some kind of career that will allow me to work as a nurse scientist in some capacity could be interesting. So always thought clinically, but 
after year two, I started to think about research. So since that time, through my undergrad, I took on extensive research assistant positions. Mm -hmm. And then when it came time to graduating from the undergraduate program, wrote my licensing exam Mm. and jumped right into a graduate degree, a master's degree in nursing. As I started that program, though, um, I quickly realized, how can I be a nurse researcher if I've never clinically worked as a nurse? Yeah, right outside of undergraduate placements that I was involved in. And so I I even struggled with writing papers during my graduate program. I still got good grades, but it wasn't really about the grades. It's about being able to apply what I was learning to nursing practice Mm -hmm. or tackling nursing problems, but never having worked as a nurse. So halfway through my master's, realizing that, I got a position as a nurse at the hospital, uh, Toronto Western Hospital, General Internal Medicine, where I still work to this day. I never quit. Um, but working clinically I realized how of a marriage if you will it Mm -hmm. is between having clinical experience being involved in research and I also fell in love with academia so right after my master's jumped into PhD and here I am today as a professor amazing you mentioned this opportunity you had early in your undergraduate degree where you were offered a research position And that theme has come up previously on our podcast where there have been individuals who were offered those experiences and it completely changed their trajectory of getting them interested in research from there forward. And I think it really highlights the critical importance of being able to offer as many of these opportunities as we can to students. And one thing we've started to do in the Department of Chemistry and Biology is having evenings where we do info sessions and advertise to students what's available. Because I know in my own experience of being an undergrad student, being a first gen student, I did not know any of these kinds of things existed. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until my fourth year that I just started to dabble in these types of experiences. So that's so fantastic to once again highlight that importance. And in my role as a professor, I now realizing what impact it had on me, I do that with my undergraduate students as well. Sometimes, you know, people will ask me, well, you don't teach in the master's program, you're disadvantaged, you're not gonna have research assistants, Mm. you're not gonna be able to mentor students. Why does it have to start at the master's level? Right. Yes, uh, undergraduate students do require more mentorship. But if you spend that time up front, that will add richness to the nursing profession later on. We will be able to retain these students for our master's program, urban health program, a PhD in urban health program, and and, or other programs. But we will add to the nursing profession. Absolutely. I see parallels in my own research group in that for the past couple of years, it has been weighted more heavily towards undergraduate researchers Mm -hmm. joining. And TMU has a fabulous program i have to put a plug to it a Mm. plug for it the undergraduate research opportunities Mm -hmm. uh scholarship program and i had an opportunity to have an undergraduate student with me through that program fabulous i'm so glad that tmu is contributing funding to such programs is this the uro program exactly yes i also brought in a student through that program it's it's fantastic and for any listeners who are interested in what else is available shoot me an email anytime. I'm happy to provide the list of all of the various programs we have. Kind of an 
interesting topic because I know we think, especially in the sciences, people go into bio or biomed and then they go to med school in theory or, you know, like dentistry and like those kinds of fields. But nursing is a little different. We have a school of nursing, which means that there's Mm. a different required skill set. But I think for me, at least, and I think for a lot of people, you think that nursing is just the four years and then you leave. Is it common to do a master's program and a PhD as well? So I'm starting to see quite a lot of nurses who are working frontline bedside with master's degrees. Yeah. And so the challenge that I pose to healthcare organizations, acute care, community care organizations, if you have such nurses and the rate of such nurses is increasing. Mm -hmm. Why not involve them more in research and Mm -hmm. quality improvement initiatives? Mm -hmm. Not uh, pulling them away from the bedside, but working with them to see how we can enhance those, utilize those expertise and enhance um, what we can do as an organization Mm -hmm. with this group. So nursing is a baccalaureate prepared four-year program upon which once you complete it you do a licensing exam and then register with the college of nurses of ontario if you graduate in ontario but similar processes uh, happen across the country and other provinces and territories but we're starting to see a lot more people coming back quite recently from graduating from their undergrad uh, coming back to do their graduate mm. studies. The trend for PhD is hit and miss. Mm-hmm. We, we see quite a, quite a lot of uh, people coming back for PhD education, but there might be a bit more of a gap in terms of years, although we are seeing you know also an increase in students going right from their master's towards a PhD. And the nursing program itself, I feel like we should highlight it because I feel like people don't play. I don't know. I feel like it's not like something I knew about, really. But is it more think taking into account both the science and practice of like medicine as well as the social aspects? Because you did mention that you focus on like the social implications of health, basically. So nursing, as we like to define it, is an art and a science. Mm-hmm. Okay. So beautiful. There is a marriage of the two, if you will. Mm-hmm. But we are very distinct from medicine and other healthcare provider groups because we are the one healthcare provider group that spends the most direct care hours oh, with absolutely. patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in terms of applying and connecting with people on a human level, getting to know the person behind the disease, mm-hmm. providing compassionate care, um, really applying social determinants of health and mm-hmm. trying to identify the intersectionality of each one of our patients, and then adding on to what are their medical needs and bridging those two things together. That is something that I would say nursing does the most out of all the healthcare professions Mm -hmm. because of how much time we spend at the bedside with each client. So oftentimes a patient will present themselves to the healthcare institution with what we medicine uh, biometrics can discover as the problem. So for Mm -hmm. example, elevated blood pressure. But how often do people isolate everything else that is happening to them in society Mm -hmm. when they're stepping through a physical door to enter a healthcare institution. They are bringing their experiences of racism, discrimination, you know, gender representations and issues that they may encounter with that um, outside of the hospital. They're bringing all of that in, as well as social and other challenges that they are experiencing and interacting with in the community. So when they come in and we just address the acute care challenge from a medical perspective, 
we're not factoring all those other things that are troubling that patient. So that's what nursing is. I see that as nursing, where we are connecting and factoring in all those elements to deliver person-centered care. Amazing. That's so interesting. It's so like, for any listeners who are interested in learning more about those critically important topics you just mentioned, uh, always going back to the base of checking out Kimberly, Kimberly Crenshaw's work on intersectionality is a key resource to get you started. There was something you mentioned in your previous answer that I kind of latched on to when you said that your parents really encouraged you to get into the medical field. Did you find that something to be motivating and encouraging or did you find it something that was kind of undue pressure and not particularly helpful? I think my parents are proud of me today. Sure. But that took a very long time. Okay. For them coming as um, immigrants and having to leave behind careers that were highly respected in our home country, although financially not not, uh, supported as they would be here. Right. Um, was very difficult for them. And they had to start from zero because their degrees were not valued here yep. back in the day. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so my father went into construction um, because that paid really well and he could support the family. And my mom ended up cleaning hotel rooms, working at restaurants, factories, but she ended up pursuing her nursing degree and became a nurse. Okay. So when I expressed interest and I applied for various programs such as life sciences, health sciences, nursing, When I chose nursing, it was a bit hard for my mom, not because she Mm. didn't appreciate what this profession offered her in Canada, but because she always envisioned life science, health science, those traditional pathways into medicine. But she always thought she's gonna go into nursing, she'll still go into medicine, she'll learn those key skills Um. and everything will be fine. Well, I got hooked on research. I fell in love with the mentorship. I was offered the opportunities uh, I was provided. And I'll put a plug in for Dr. Yasna Schwinn and Dr. Margaret Zanchetta because they really were those foundational players in the School of Nursing that really supported my, my love for research today. But when I went into my master's program, she's like, and then what? Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I went into my PhD explaining to her I can still be a doctor but not a medical doctor i will still feel that praise that you want me to feel i will still be respected in a similar way that you want me to be respected i will still pay tribute to you in some way by making you proud but she didn't understand that right because and i'll speak for my mom just because that was where more of the tension was. My father was just happy that I was continuing and studying and, and you know, that their move to Canada was not for nothing to right. offer us a better educational experience. But with my mother, it was hard for mm. quite, a, quite a bit of time. But today, I would say they both are proud of me, but it took a long time. So it was hard because I was navigating a field that I received some support from my parents and i i'm not talking financially i mean morally um sure i received some support but not to the extent where we're so proud of you you're doing a phd it's mm-hmm. like and then what what are you going to do with that mom i'm a professor at tmu in one of the largest nursing schools in canada okay and then what mm. but today three years into my tenure track journey yesterday i got a text message 
Aww. of I'm proud of you. Oh, wow. I'm so glad we asked that question now. <laughs> That's, That's question. great timing. Um, yeah, I think I have or I can certainly uh, relate to some of that. And again, as I mentioned, first generation my parents didn't really understand all of the complexities of academia. And when I went to graduate school, I faced those same questions of, what are you gonna do with this? Well, why are you doing this? Um, Kind of a different mindset in that they thought, well, you should just be going to get a job and make money. Oh, you're still in school and we all know the compensation for graduate students. It was a tough few years financially or going to my PhD. Okay, well now what? Well, now what? Now that they see me in a full-time position, it's, oh my gosh, this is amazing. But there was that, that doubt for a while there. And the beauty with nursing is that I wasn't dependent. I moved out when I was 22 mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I could work full-time, reduced hours at times through key periods in my education, but I could work to support myself right, right after the four years. Interestingly, my sister became a nurse, went to the same nursing program, went to do her master's thesis stream at TMU, and now is doing her PhD at Western. She did not have the same experiences. Maybe she'll contradict me, but she did not have the same experiences that I did because I paid the way for her. So now my mom's like, oh, I have two daughters who are, (laughs) you know, one's PhD prepared and one is on her way. Yeah. So she had it a bit easier in that regard. Right, absolutely. It sounds like she owes you one there. Yeah, really. (laughs) Um, But I asked the question because that theme has come up previously in our research of asking students um, contributing factors to their fear of failure. And one of them is just the general negative stigma. But coming in at number two was family and familial Mm -hmm. pressure to be successful in often majors that they're parents or guardians have pushed them towards I look at my kids and I don't know if current educational approaches are setting up students for preparing to fail if that's the right Mm -hmm. way to say it (laughs) they um, even in school when they get something wrong they're given opportunities to correct it immediately which is great I appreciate that learning approach but my kids then think that they're always going to get perfect. Mm-hmm. Right. They're always going to get 20 out of 20. Um, and then the higher they climb in education, then they start getting things wrong and teachers start evaluating them as what they're actually producing. And it's a big shock to them. Right. Mm-hmm. My, my eldest, he's only in grade three, but when he started grade three, he came in thinking, I'm Mr. Perfect, I know everything wrote a test, got things wrong, came home, showed it to me and said, I don't get it. Mm. And so because in previous years, it was always, oh, correct this or figure this out. And so he always brought perfect things home. Right. Whereas now he's like, why am I like, I know everything. How, how could I get mm. these things wrong? Mm-hmm. So I worry what that means. Because what I see in university undergrad students yep. also is this fear of that C fear of that D or F um, without stopping to process the feedback, trying to understand it, reflecting on the process they took to craft their assignment essay and what that means for the grade that they got and how to improve and advance. It's the focus on the C 
Right. And that's where the thought process just lays on that C, on that grade, versus the instructor gave you five pages of feedback. Mm -hmm. And I, I literally mean if the essay's five pages, I grade every on every page there is feedback. Even for A plus, you'll get tons of feedback. I find that they're just so concentrated on the C versus what that feedback means for growth and development. A thousand percent. You are absolutely speaking my language right now. And that's a huge focus of what we do in that to date, I have been looking at the undergraduate level, but I agree that there are challenges that begin before that, where students aren't given those opportunities to learn from failure. And it's just kind of guaranteed success, always moving forward, no matter what the performance looked like. Um, so I have a lot of, especially first year students saying, you know, I've never failed before. Mm. I don't even know how to handle this. I'm an A student, I don't understand. And so one thing we've been looking at is how to craft assessments to address that exact concern of students looking at the grade and then tossing it aside and not at all visiting that feedback. So, you know, multi-stage assignments, Alex is familiar, she was in my class, where you get those assignments back, but the final part of the grade is revising it, resubmitting it, or even revisiting term tests and um, repeating the short answer component and resubmitting those. So it's not just the focus on the grade. Let's look at that feedback. You also have to take into consideration, like I just did really badly on a midterm. I just got the mark yesterday and I was like, oh, I'm sorry. well, I passed. But like you also have to take into account factors, right? Like the first exam, I did amazing. The second one, I didn't do well, but I remember that week I was so busy. I had three assignments, a presentation, and two exams within the same week. And it's like, sometimes there are factors outside of your control that you can't, like there's nothing that you can do to prepare for those. You know, that's important, but also being willing to take that step back and mm -hmm. look and be like, I'm, I made a mistake. It's some of the most painful stuff is like looking at exams when like you did badly and you see those red marks all over the page and you're like, oh my gosh, how did I do this? But what's most important about looking at those red marks is being like, okay, how do I fix this? What am I missing here? What did I mess up, you know? And that is really truly where you learn. That's where you do most of your learning is reflection and looking at those things. Absolutely. You will, if you get something wrong once and you do so badly that you are like, oh my gosh, and you look at it, you will never make that mistake again. I can promise you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's important to contextualize the grade and the failure, just <laughs> like you said. And what you stated at the end, that's true. That's supported by evidence. If you get something wrong and revisit it, work through why you got it wrong, you're then more likely to remember that concept on a later evaluation. I actually have a 24-hour rule with my students. So when I return an essay um, or any assignment, I do not entertain any discussion about right. the grade they received. I want them to reflect on that feedback for 24 hours, then send me a paragraph yep. explaining where they felt the feedback did not uh, address some of their concerns, maybe wasn't clear, they mm -hmm. wanted to discuss more. And I find that waiting period really, it's not that I don't want to meet with students, but eliminates the number of students that come forward to clarify a grade because they sit with the feedback, they're mm -hmm. forced to kind of look at it. Yep. Some still don't, mm -hmm. but 
it's that initial shock of, oh my God, I got to see, I need to t- go talk to the professor right. versus, okay, I got to see. I still can't talk to the professor. Okay, let me look. Why did I get the C? What's not clear? And then coming to talk to the professor. Absolutely. I will start with a disclaimer that I am a very proud Canadian. I love traveling abroad and mentioning that I'm from Canada and the positive feedback associated. And I think there's so many successes that we can be proud of in the Canadian healthcare system and our universal healthcare. But there are also many challenges that are facing our healthcare system. So based on your diverse experiences, what is one area for improvement that you are most passionate about? I feel like you have touched on a few aspects already. Yeah, I would say right now, and it's no surprise, it's all over the news, we have a healthcare crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, nurses have been advocating for better uh, nurse-patient ratios, better Absolutely. working conditions, better wages um, prior to the pandemic. But during the pandemic, all those cracks, if you will, all mm. those issues oh, yes. became very, very apparent. Mm-hmm. And so right now we are, um, you know, it's not that nurses are leaving the profession per se. They might be going to different aspects of the healthcare system, working in different specialized areas. Sure. Um, but what we're seeing in general medicine, and I'll only speak for my own experience, I'm not speaking from statistics, but we're seeing a lot of new nurses leaving mm. uh, the floor. So they'll come, they will work for maybe half a year, maximum a year, and then they leave that particular specialty. They go somewhere else, they seek something else. Um, So I think that is a major challenge is how do we ensure nurses enter into practical fields and stay there and we Mm -hmm. keep them and we keep them happy, supported, but at the same time, they have an active voice in change. A lot of the policies are made sometimes in isolation of the nursing voice. Um, But nurses then end up having to work under those policies. Mm -hmm. Um, Organizational mandates and values and mission statements and strategic priorities should be made in consideration of that nursing voice as well. So really, um, um, I hate to use the word empowering, but working with nurses to, to ensure that their voice is amplified, acknowledged, respected, and valued. So they can feel like um, bedside is a good area for them to continue to work in um, and really help support optimal patient health outcomes and care satisfaction. Oh, absolutely. As a pedagogical researcher myself, I always say of the importance of engaging students as partners in our work. Similar here, the critical importance of engaging nurses as partners when making these policy-based decisions. Oh, there are so many. Yeah. Just one? Do you have a favorite or oh, a least I, favorite? This is the yeah. one that I love sharing with my nursing students. Um, so I hope my nursing license is not taken away oh, for no. this. Um, but I'm very open about it. It's not a secret. Um, so in nursing, once I finished my four years of the undergraduate program, wrote my licensing exam, as I shared with the listeners, went to do my master's degree, halfway through my master's, got my first job as a nurse. General internal medicine, really excited about this opportunity. It took me a while to also secure a nursing position, unlike today when they are widely available. Mm. Back in the day, it was challenging. Mm -hmm. 
got my first position, went through um, the training. So the way um, nursing positions work is first you do buddy shifts with Mm -hmm. a a unit nurse who is a little bit more experienced, has been working on the unit for a while. So you do shadowing and buddy shifts uh, through the orientation period for a certain number of weeks. Mm. So this was my first shift independent nursing practice after having undergone the buddy system training. Very excited, come in, maybe a little bit cocky, Mm -hmm. um, but very excited coming in, uniform crisp, iron, walking the halls as if I own the place. And morning medications. So what that means is you typically have in general medicine four to five clients in the uh, for a 12 hour period starting at 730 in the morning. Morning meds are typically around eight o'clock. Mm-hmm. So you have a, a one hour window to give them. And then there's also 10 o'clock meds. So I prepared all the medications for all my clients walk to the first patient with my medications, bring the computer system with me, prepare the meds. But the client had the same last name as another client. Mm. And the client had a language barrier. Mm -hmm. So I come with all my medications. Obviously, somewhere in the process, (laughs) I did not follow all the rights of medication administration. Mm -hmm. Where I blocked that memory out, (laughs) but somewhere I did not follow that. So I give the client the medications. And the client looks at those medications and clearly the colors of some of those meds and the shape the client could easily recognize. They might not be an expert in the meds, but the client is an expert in the meds they typically take. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the client looked at that and and was trying to tell me like, no, 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 no. Probably saying in their language, these are not my medications. Why are you giving them to me? Mm -hmm. Without getting a translator, thinking I know best, I continue (laughs) to encourage. My first shift in dependent nursing practice, I am not going to have a client who's refusing medications. Right. Uh-uh, not right. going to happen. Not under my shift. And so I did. I encouraged the client. The client ended up taking all the morning meds that were intended for a different client. Oh, no. I nearly died that shift. Um, the client, nothing happened to the client because the mm. meds were... Things such as, it's irrelevant, but things such as Tylenol mm-hmm. and, okay. yeah. you know, like milder medications, sure. if there's such a thing. Sure. But that client had, um, without revealing too much, uh, a lot of fluid in their abdomen and they were supposed to receive an abdominal tap later mm. on. And because they took the wrong meds, they had to delay that tap for another the next day so it caused discomfort to Mm -hmm. the client of course nervousness uh that came along with having received medications that were intended for that client Mm -hmm. and i remember realizing as soon as the client swallowed the medications i went to sign them off i realized that wrong client and i just remember this feeling of like the room closing in and everything (sighs) going dark and i'm a very emotional person tears started sure pouring down my face and a senior nurse on the unit saw me pulled me aside and said what are you doing it is okay life goes on we will figure this out and I am so grateful because it could have gone in a completely different direction I would have exited nursing and guess what to do a to be a professor in nursing you need to be a nurse you need to be licensed with the college of nurses so I wouldn't have been here today right so one mistake one 
follow-up or mentorship experience based on that one mistake that could have gone in a different direction would have changed my entire life wow so i am so grateful to to that nurse who said mistakes happen yes this is a major one tried to reflect on what happened yes not to ever do that again but you will be a good nurse and you will continue Mm. to nurse for a long time and so i use this in all of my undergrad classes with students and i remember this was a couple weeks ago i shared the story with them and they were all looking at me with like wide eyes like our professor made such a mistake but you're the (laughs) clinical lead i'm the lead of year two clinical practice for tmu and they're like how could you do that and i'm like i did that i'm a human being yep and the chance of you making a similar error or another error in your nursing practice is is possible Mm -hmm. but it's how you come out of it how you reflect on that situation and how you move forward that's what's going to make a difference in your nursing career I love that reaction that your mentor had to that because it could have been, like you said, a very make or break moment for you. And by them acknowledging the mistake, but also being supportive of working through it and reflecting on it is so invaluable because if they had a more maybe explosive um, reaction, that could have contributed to so many people who are fearful of making mistakes Mm -hmm. or maybe even try to hide mistakes because they're worried about potential consequences. I'm not speaking nursing specifically, just in general, how we think about failures. So having that supportive reaction is amazing. Yeah, and in nursing, it is so hard to think about such mistakes because you're dealing with human beings. Right. At the end of the day, your mistake could cause somebody's significant discomfort. Yep. And I hate to say it, but lead to death. It could. Mm-hmm. So you have to be reflective. You have to take each mistake at face value and you have to process it. Right. You have to surround yourself with people who will give you feedback on that mistake and help you grow from it. Because those mistakes, I guarantee you will take very personally when there could be other factors at play that could have contributed to that mistake. So did I commit that mistake? Absolutely. I will own it. Mm -hmm. But there are also other factors such as patient to nurse ratios. The higher those ratios are, the more likelihood that you will make such mistakes. How short staffed some of the units can be will also equate to contributing to you making that mistake. Mm you working long hours and having to pick up shifts time and time again and not having those rest periods in between shifts fatigue in relation to that will will lead to you making that mistake organizational support and culture and the processes that they have in place to correct those mistakes such as incident reporting and how they treat debrief post such Mm -hmm. situations so there are other factors yes it's you making that mistake but there are also other factors. So self-blame can really make it difficult as well for you to move forward. Again, coming back to our idea of contextualizing the failure, yes, owning it, yes, reflecting, but also in this case, thinking about kind of the institutional level supports and policy supports that are in place to help minimize those mistakes from happening. Oh, I also just wanted to mention that what you were when you were explaining your students and their wide-eyed look of like disbelief those stories are why we even 
kind of had this idea for this podcast and I've had kids in my year and kids younger who have heard about this and are excited for it to come out and being like I really want to hear those stories those are the stories that make me feel like I'm not alone when I mess up you know and especially when it's coming from a professor especially when it's someone who's as important and as respected as to stand at the front of a class in front of like 500 students and give lectures and the university endorses them you know that is huge because it shows that even when you do mess up you're not you're not done it's not over it happens it's okay so with that in mind what advice do you have for undergraduate students facing challenges and where can they turn to for support yeah this is a very tough question to answer but it's okay to make mistakes we all do it Mm -hmm. as i shared I I made mistakes and I continue to make mistakes as a professor. I am not perfect. And so it's okay to make mistakes, but it's how we learn from those mistakes and move forward. It's how we reflect on that. And is it wrong to celebrate mistakes? Because mistakes is what's going to help us grow and develop and learn from those mistakes to not make them in greater stakes situations. You know, yes, I committed this medication error, but the client was okay. Mm -hmm. And I hopefully will never commit that medication error that could potentially lead to a client passing away. So am I grateful for that mistake? Yes and no, (laughs) but grateful from the perspective that it did not hurt the client significantly. And I am very mindful to always follow all the rights of medication from that point forward and being very present in the moment as I'm doing that. So for all of my undergraduate students and others that are listening, celebrate mistakes as well because they will lead to you learning from that and not making Mm -hmm. them again in the future. And even if you do, that's okay. Continue to learn, continue to be reflective process it, Mm -hmm. do what you need to take that time to live with that mistake, but then also learn how to move on and proceed in whatever area that mistake was made in. I think this is a bit of a tangent, but that also reminded me of an article I was reading recently for uh, one area of improvement for professors is to be more willing to admit when we don't know something. And I thought that that was interesting And upon self-reflection, I thought, wow, I am already expert at that. (laughs) I am constantly saying in my class, that's an amazing question. I have no idea. Let's Google it. Let's learn about that together and have embraced acknowledging the limitations to my own knowledge as well. And that's very difficult for me to do. Mm. And that's what I'm learning to do, even though I've been teaching and involved in academia for the for a decade, it's very hard for me to do. I learned all these tactics over the years when a student asks me a question in class that I don't know the answer to, I would say, well, can you look it up and tell me? I'm curious what you you will find. (laughs) Kind of putting the onus on the student to do the work and bring it back. I mean, that's good too, for sure, and helping them with their own research skills. Right, but what's wrong with me saying in front of the class, I actually don't know that. I am committed to learning about that and bringing that back because I'm a big proponent of co-education, co-learning. exactly. Um, That I am also learning from each student encounter, that I'm not an expert, I'm a facilitator of knowledge exchange with students. Each time I teach the course, and I've been teaching the same courses for the past few years, 
I'm learning so much from the students. Sure. So there's nothing wrong with me also saying, I don't know, but I will learn and get back to you. I will research that. I will share uh, my findings with you next class. Sure. I don't do that often, <laughs> but there is nothing wrong with me doing that. So in that vein, do you have any advice that you often give to students in your research group or your mentees if they're experiencing challenge or failure? Yeah, so for me, as I shared earlier, I got involved in research as a second year student. Right. So I always reflect on my own failure. I remember being asked to write a a component of a manuscript. I remember uh, being asked to participate in interviews um, and recruit participants. I remember uh, being asked to engage in knowledge dissemination. Fantastic. And having lots of, not necessarily challenges, but I did not perform, I guess, at the level that I was expected to, but I was always a perfectionist. So for me, that was very hard to receive feedback where I was asked to revise something, to rewrite something, to receive feedback that I did not entirely um, understand the exercise correctly, mm -hmm. that I did not apply the research method properly, that I did not analyze something thematically as it should have been. That was very hard for me. So I apply those reflections of how I felt um, and all those trials and errors that I experienced with my own students. So whenever I take on a research student, I am very deliberate in terms of check-ins every week, mm. uh, outlining right from the beginning that I don't expect anything to be perfect, but I expect work to be done. Right. So what I mean by that is, you're not sure, put something on paper, we will meet on Friday, I will walk you through it. You are not writing for a journal right now. You are writing right. a draft. We are working towards a draft of a manuscript. We are working towards a draft of a presentation. We are learning about the research ethics board application process. Download the form, start plugging things in. We will talk about it if you're nervous about plugging things in right into the form itself. Right. So I work where, where my learner is at and I work with them through that process. So. What I would like to be as a takeaway for others who are listening is ask for that. If you're not being offered that, find mentorships, at least those at the beginning that can offer you that ability to have those trials and errors. Not every professor can offer that. Sometimes we receive tri-council agency funding that is very limited. We have grants that we have to complete with it in a certain time. Right. That even though we might be exceptional mentors in other areas of our lives, because of the time, we do not always can offer that ability for extensive mentorship trial and error, but at the same time, ask for that, especially in your first few projects that you're taking on, methodologies that you're going to be working on within a particular study that you're mm -hmm. not familiar with. And it's okay to, to mention that when you go for an interview saying, you know what, I primarily have been involved in quantitative research. I don't know anything about narrative inquiry, but I really want to learn. Sure. Mm -hmm. And so if a professor can offer that, that will be really helpful for you to make those mistakes, but then really learn that methodology well and be able to excel in that research project that you're involved in, for example. 
that's such an important transferable skill, that skill of self-advocacy and asking for help and asking for support when you need it. Deciding on post-graduation pathways can be really overwhelming, especially when you're in like a general biology or general chem or even nursing. Do you have any advice for students who are considering a career in academia or a career in nursing or just how do we go about selecting those paths? That is a very hard question. (laughs) Um, But I think the best answer is select the pathway that's you. That's not your parents, your friends, your partner. Sometimes we get pressured into making selections that are not us. And so thankfully, I was able to do that right off the bat, but it was very hard. So I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to say it's easy when you start selecting your own path, but that is what's going to help you and keep you happy ultimately later in life. Mm -hmm. So I often see students struggling coming into professions that their parents want them to enter, their friends, their partner, and they don't succeed at the end. Or they do, but it's very hard on them in terms of their mental health or other uh, well-being aspects. So why put yourself through that? A professorship is an amazing, amazing opportunity. I love what I do and I come to work every day truly being in love with my profession. And I could not choose anything outside of being a professor in nursing. But it's also hard. Mm -hmm. It's a hard profession. It takes years to get there. As Crystal has mentioned, it takes years. Takes a lot of passion, dedication. You have to know what you want to research, what you want to uh, study and where you want to contribute. You have to find your niche, but you also have to love what you do. And so I love that. But when selecting that next career opportunity, next educational opportunity, make sure it's reflective of who you are. Mm-hmm. And some of us might not know who we are. And so that's OK, too, to make those mistakes, to enter into a program and not love it. It's okay to leave the program after a year or two and go and do something else. I mean, I was absolutely shocked and in love with finding out that one of my students has a PhD and was a professor in a different field. But during the pandemic, wanted to feel essential. Mm. And so they switched from being in academia, having a PhD, having a postdoc, <laughs> and now being a nursing student. And I remember feeling like, you know, am I qualified enough to teach this student <laughs> because of yeah. everything that they brought in yeah. from another field. But that's the decision they made even after going through all those years, getting that hard-earned professor position, which is, as Crystal might share, difficult to get, and it's a process (laughs) on its own, but then switching and going into nursing. Wow. So it's okay at whatever stage you are in life, stage of your education, to make those changes, to make yourself feel that sense of fulfillment in your life. I think your undergraduate degree is such a time for discovery, although, of course, you can be discovering after that as per your (laughs) previous example. But in my own undergraduate degree, 
I added a minor in my third year because I found that I was enjoying those courses very much. And then that was the field in which I ended up getting my PhD. So where I started at the beginning of my undergraduate degree was not where I ended up. Dr. Matursky, thank you so much for joining us today. At this time, we'd like to invite you to share current projects, opportunities, anything you would like to advertise to an undergraduate-focused audience. Yeah, I started an initiative on my LinkedIn account titled Dr. Matursky's Most Valuable People. And so every single week, Monday morning, 9 a.m., I feature uh, one of my undergraduate, graduate, or professional practice uh, research assistants. So oh, anybody that I mentored, anybody that I did work with, um, anybody that contributed to manuscript writing, essentially anyone that I had an opportunity to mentor in any way in research, I feature them every single week on Monday on my LinkedIn to give them that opportunity to have their wonderful work achievements broadcast to my connections. Not that I have that many, <laughs> but enough to get their name out there for them to share what they learned through that mentorship, what they liked, what they found difficult, what they found challenging. And that really helps other students who I have on my LinkedIn to realize they could be involved in research at an undergraduate level. Mm -hmm. They could make mistakes. They could achieve things at the end of reaching out to a professor, even though they are in year two, even though they are in year three, and connect and do research. So through that, I've actually had a lot of undergrad students approach me and say, Dr. Matursky, I had no idea I could be involved in research, that I could publish with you, that I could do things. And I correct them and I say, not just with me, you could approach other faculty and do this, mm -hmm. but you do need to share your interest or mm -hmm. you do need to take that leap of faith the first time, make those connections and get yourself out there if you're thinking about research. So that's one of the thing, one of the initiatives I am currently involved in that I'm really, really proud of from a sharing perspective in terms of the research work that I do. That's so wonderful. I love that. We encourage everyone take a minute of your time, get on LinkedIn, <laughs> do a search for Katerina Matursky and hit that add button. That's great. Well, thank you so much again for coming in. We really appreciate it. We know you're busy, but you have truly enlightened me a lot. I've learned so much and I think that I would love to take a nursing. Can I take a, am I allowed? Is there a nursing class I can take? I want to take one of your classes. We can talk offline. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed sharing a little bit about who I am, my life story, and if it can help somebody else in the process, extra bonus. Thank you so much. All right. See you guys next week. Thank you.